Hi, friends. Welcome to Reframing Neurodiversity. I'm your host, Melissa Jackson, and I'm here to tell you it's time to see neurodivergence for what it truly is, a gift that benefits us all. As a former teacher, mom to two neurodivergent kids, and as a neurodivergent person myself, I know it's possible to see your neurowiring in a new way. That's why I'm on a mission to reframe the way we view neurodivergence as a collective and to empower us as neurodivergent adults and parents with the language and tools to advocate for ourselves and our kids. Join me each week as my guests and I share our personal experiences paired with cutting edge research, leaving you feeling seen, validated, and proud of the way your brain works. Ready to get started? Let's dive into today's episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Reframing Neurodiversity podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Jackson, and today we have a very special guest with us, my friend and colleague, Megan Barnett, who is the founder, CEO, and lead executive function coach of the Learning Collective and a wealth of information, all things ADHD. Megan, I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. And me too. So for listeners, Megan and I connected through our graduate work at Bridges Graduate School originally. And since then, we have collaborated and had conversations that are ongoing and wonderful and often surround our mutual fascination with ADHD, which we're going yes. to dive into today. So let's start with ADHD. So often there's sort of this like stigma stereotype around what people associate, you know, with ADHD. And Mm -hmm. so I would love in this conversation to sort of like take a step back, start from the beginning Mm -hmm. and ask you to explain to us from a more holistic approach, what is ADHD and what are the strengths and the weaknesses that are often associated with people with this learning profile? Yeah. So I work with a lot of students who, you know, primarily are diagnosed with ADHD. And I think what's important to start with is right now we're now referring to ADHD as ADHD instead of, you know, sometimes you hear ADD, different types of ways of describing it. But essentially, I like to explain it as a neurobiological difference, essentially. So it is something that's classified in the DSM-5, right, as a neurobiological disorder. But essentially, I like to speak to my students and, and clients by saying it's a neurobiological difference in how someone self-regulates and in their executive function skills. So that's kind of where my title executive function coach comes in. And basically your executive function skills are brain-based skills that are mainly housed in the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And they are the skills that are going to help someone self-regulate plan, prioritize, task initiate. And so when a person is diagnosed with ADHD, those skill sets are primarily impacted. Mm -hmm. And so we see three types of ADHD. So we have the inattentive ADHD. I see that more in my female clients. It's often a little bit later diagnosed because it's not the classic kiddo who's bouncing off the walls, the ADHD hyperactive type. But the inattentive type, there's that distractibility. Sometimes you may feel like your child or even yourself, if you're diagnosed with inattentive ADHD, like zoning out. The combined type is the combination of that hyperactivity and the distractibility. And then we have the hyperactive type, which is 
classically what people think of with ADHD, between five to 8% of children. So that's one in every 15 or 20 children will be diagnosed with ADHD. So I come from a teaching background. So we see this a lot in the classroom and just in the general population. So it's so important to really understand what ADHD is through this executive function lens, because we can just have such a better understanding of what's really going on. Yes, absolutely. And I love how you broke down the three different types, the three Mm -hmm. different categories, because I think so often our association is with the hyperactive type Mm -hmm. and sort of how that typically presents maybe in a young boy, you know, Mm -hmm. and so often- girls and and boys too who have the inattentive type get overlooked because we're not, they don't display those outward characteristics that we all kind of associate, even pediatricians associate with ADHD. So if you're a parent who's wanting to advocate for your child and maybe they are more the inattentive type, are there things that they can look for and things they could speak up about, you know, to, to navigate getting support from a younger age when you don't fall under that stereotypical umbrella? Yes. A hundred percent. I think it's also important, you know, you and I, um, with our background at at Bridges, that specialty in in 2E. Um, So oftentimes also if a child is gifted, that can kind of mask some of the struggles of ADHD if they also have ADHD. So that's something I always like to point out. I often work with a lot of families of children who are gifted and you only start to see the impacts of that executive function difference when they reach high school. These are the kiddos who can go in and take a test and pass it, right? But they're really secretly shocked that they they didn't even know the test was that day, right? And so suddenly we enter high school where there's just such an increase in the demand on executive function. And that's when we start to see that come through and, and the reality of the ADHD. You know, I will say for parents who are advocating for their children. First off, if your child is that gifted kiddo who also has ADHD, it's really important to advocate that grades should not be the end-all be-all indicator of whether or not a child needs support in school. That's one of my biggest points that I like to drive home in the parent courses I do. And schools will validate that and they will listen to you, but it, it has to come, unfortunately, from the parent, right? Um there's this thing called WTF, wait to fail, wait to see the kiddos fail. And again, that's just kind of a colloquial acronym, right? (laughs) But it's not what school should be using as an indicator of whether a child needs support. So if you know that your child has ADHD or you're noticing some of these symptoms, it may be a challenge with working memory. So you may notice that they literally just really don't know what they're supposed to be accomplishing for homework or what tasks they have to complete. They may be struggling to hold that information in their working memory, which is what we would use to write down a phone number, for example. So if if you're chatting with your child and they're really struggling just off the top of their head to tell you what they need to complete, you can say to the school when you're advocating, we have a huge issue with task initiation. That's a big one with a lot of my students with ADHD. So maybe they're not completing a lot of work in class. And that is a classical sign of that executive function skill deficit. So there's a lot of layers to peel back, which is what you and I often speak about. You know, I can even provide the list to 
bring into a meeting with the school to say, these are all symptoms. So like what you are observing in class, the reason behind that is this ADHD diagnosis. And this is why my child either needs, if they're in a public school, a 504 or an IEP, which is an individualized education plan. So it's just knowledge is power, right? And, and we don't get a handbook as parents going into the schools. I mean, and I love that you're bringing in the gifted element to this because mm-hmm. so often, you know, you and I come from the 2E world. So this is another another fascinating feature, I think, for both of us is how often ADHD can mimic giftedness and vice versa and how they can yes. coexist. And it mm-hmm. can be very difficult to tease those things apart. And then especially when our professionals aren't privy to all this information on what it means to be these two things. And mm-hmm. so- as parents going in, you're really having to advocate and share, you know, about your child in ways that professionals maybe don't typically associate as ADHD, or there's behaviors that are showing up that aren't typically seen as a problem. Like a child, like you're Mm -hmm. saying, is getting good grades in school, but they're struggling. And then how do you get them the support that they need? Like those things can coexist. Like you're saying, you can be struggling and still have straight A's. Yes. (laughs) Right. And I think it's also important, we often have this discussion, so anxiety and depression and PTSD can also impact your executive function skill sets. So even if a child doesn't have ADHD, if they have, for example, generalized anxiety disorder, they may need supports in school to support some of those executive function skill sets that are being impacted. So what's interesting is when someone is experiencing an elevated level of anxiety, like a clinical level Mm -hmm. that you would see in generalized anxiety disorder, the subcortical zone of the brain becomes impacted. And that kind of in this cascade effect impacts the prefrontal cortex of the brain. So we see a lot of times if someone's suffering from severe anxiety, they're struggling to task initiate. They may be procrastinating, starting things, getting motivated, right? To, to move through something. There may be a lot of task avoidance or just they can't self-regulate to get through that intense level of worry to start a task. So the reason that executive function coaching or support is so important is because while it's very characteristic or very connected to ADHD, we see executive function skill sets being impacted by a variety of different either diagnoses or situations. Like I've had a couple students who play football and have had concussions that impacts your executive function skill sets. And so we see these patterns and behaviors and the explanation behind is often these prefrontal cortex rooted causes. So interesting. And just also makes me think how important it is to really get to the root cause of what's causing these outward experiences and behaviors, because the same Mm -hmm. symptoms can be caused by two very different things and require two very different solutions to support support the person, right? So I want to back up and just make sure we're clear that everyone understands how would you define what exactly are executive function skills? So executive function skills you know, sometimes they're oversimplified in literature as the, like the executive of your brain, but essentially they're located in the prefrontal cortex of the brain right behind your forehead. And they're basically the brain-based skill sets to self-regulate and execute tasks. So some things that are classified as executive function skills would be 
time management, planning and prioritizing, goal-oriented persistence. So that kind of self-realization of making a plan, working through the plan, persisting through the work, right? We also see emotional regulation as a huge one. So oftentimes kiddos with ADHD whose executive function skill sets are impacted, have that really short fuse. So I'll also contribute this statistic So Russell Barkley is a leading ADHD psychologist. And in his research, he found that when you take a child who has ADHD, we see a 30% difference or deficit in their executive function skill set compared to a child of the same chronological age. Mm. So that means that we are looking at, we have a 15 year old with ADHD their executive function skill sets are functioning around a 12 or 13 year old level. And so, yeah. And so that not only helps kind of put into perspective, some of these behaviors you're seeing in your child, Mm -hmm. but it also makes sense why a lot of kiddos in middle school and high school start to struggle because there's more demands put on how many tasks they need to complete and how many things they need to stay on top of and organized. So these executive function skill sets are vital for children, adults to be able to have tasks and complete them throughout the day, that kind of Mm self-regulation to navigate tasks at hand. Yeah, this is such Mm -hmm. great information. And I can see why it, it could be so frustrating for parents who maybe are misunderstanding, you know, you're at this certain age, you quote unquote, should be able to do X, and especially if they're also 2E, which is gifted and have a learning difference, right? So if they're so highly capable, maybe in other areas, but yet then can't do something that seems much simpler, it's confusing if you don't really understand the complexity and the things that can coexist with all of this. Do you Mm -hmm. see that a lot with- So complex. Yes. I usually get, you know, a, a lot of parents who maybe have just received a diagnosis there, they say, well, why can they play video games for four hours, execute an amazing attack in the video game, right? Plan, you know, prioritize who's going to be on the team, execute that. And then when we sit down for homework, we have a huge meltdown. Mm -hmm. Um, And so part of that is the dopamine component of ADHD, right? So there's a kind of difference in the way dopamine is being kind of traveling or the uptake of it in the brain. And so if the child is getting a lot of dopamine, it's very engaging that video game, those brain centers are more activated versus something that is of low interest. Then the brain is not getting a lot of dopamine from it. It's very hard, almost like a light switch to turn that breaker on and kind of get those gears turning in the executive function skill set. And it can be almost paralyzing for a child to task initiate and really get started on something. And then think about the anxiety component coming in. If they become anxious or overwhelmed, the whole prefrontal cortex is really, I I describe it as it's offline. And so we've got to help the kiddo, right? Get back to a regulated state then we can try to use some strategies to get some dopamine in the brain and task initiate a low interest task. So yes, very complicated behind the scenes of what's going on. It makes so much sense why people with ADHD can hyper-focus and zone into something for hours if they're highly interested because the brain's 
generating more dopamine. So do you have specific strategies and tips to support people when they're struggling in these areas with executive function? Yeah. So there's so many different challenges that a lot of parents bring up in our parent meetings or or the kiddos are dealing with in school. I would say one of the biggest ones that parents often discuss with me is procrastination. So that challenge for a child to start a task and kind of get motivated to execute it. And so what I always encourage for parents is, again, we're always trying to reset and look through an executive function lens. So we can say, okay, procrastination, one component of that is time blindness, right? That's kind of a phenomena of a challenge to be aware of the passage of time, especially if they're hyper fixated on maybe TikTok, they're scrolling for what felt like 10 minutes, but it's an hour. So the time management piece that goes into executing a task and also the planning and prioritizing. So what is the first step of the task, right? So when we deal with procrastination, very kind of clear, explicit steps are often super supportive for children, adults with ADHD. So what is the first step to get started on something I'm procrastinating on? And so I call it an activation activity, but essentially it's a five to 10 minute activity that's going to get some dopamine in the brain for the kiddos, help them kind of get activated like we had talked about earlier and begin to task initiate. So for some of my kiddos, an activation activity is like going and playing with their dogs. They're transitioning, right? The transitions can be hard for the brain. It can be challenging from transitioning from a high interest task like TikTok, right? To low interest homework. So playing with their dog, or I have kiddos who will like prepare a snack, come sit down and they log on to their Google classroom. And then the next step in our process that I do at the learning collective with my students is recording down their homework. So that's also playing off of working memory, which is an executive function component as well. It's their ability to practice recording down what they need to execute, and then they can break down those steps. But I would say that activation activity is super key when we're talking about procrastination. I also recommend for parents, procrastination often happens, I see a lot over the weekend, because when you think about it, we've got a big chunk of time. Mm -hmm. Time blindness can really kick our butts over the weekend, right? And so I recommend for families sitting down with your kiddo and setting up a two-hour window where you say, okay, this is going to be our work window during the day. Let's talk about, and you can go through with your child, okay, we're seeing your grandparents from 11 to 1, you know, showing them a visual representation of the weekend so that they can visually almost see the time. That's um, Yeah. Yeah. And all of these little steps are helping the brain initiate versus giving a more passive cue to your child, like, hey, when are you going to start homework? Instead, let's take a look at what our weekend looks like. We're moving out of kind of defensiveness that a kiddo may have and instead activating the problem solving that prefrontal cortex. We're activating the executive function skills. Hmm, what activity would you want to start with first? What task would you want to start with first? Then we can build some momentum. So you're being kind of a thinking partner for your kiddo versus a fixer, like saying you need to get this one done or this task done. And all of this is engaging the prefrontal cortex. 
I love this. And you know, what's standing out to me through like the thread through everything that you're saying is like bringing the child's input into the conversation. You know, it's not just the parent going in and being like, here's what you're doing or do your homework or this is when you're doing it or how you're doing it. Like even with the task initiation, it seems as though that would be a great opportunity to let your kid have a say in like, let's create some activities that you enjoy that you're interested in to be your go-to for task initiation activities, right? hundred percent. Yes. Yes. Even with my high schoolers, I just have them write down those activation activities on a popsicle stick because with a child with ADHD, they're not going to be able often to hold those activities in their working memory, right? So that's like the classic thing when you ask your child with ADHD, what do you want for dinner? I don't know because they don't have the visual list of, well, we could have, you know, lasagna or right where we could have chicken. So by cognitively offloading those different activation activities, they have them right there in front of them and they can just select one and then you get that momentum. Um, so good. Can you tell us what what is cognitive offloading for anyone? Oh, I love – yeah. Cognitive yeah. offloading is a super important skill. Essentially, it's this concept of – we often see a weakened working memory in kiddos with ADHD. So if you get a neuropsychological evaluation, that is something that will be evaluated, your child's working memory. And again, I'll just kind of back up and say that is the brain's ability to hold information that they may have gotten verbally or seen on a slideshow in school in that kind of short-term memory holding it. So like like multi-step directions might be difficult. If yes, definitely. Isn't strong. Yeah. Yeah. So I always tell parents it's, it's kind of that situation of someone verbally tells you their phone number, how many numbers are you able to hold mm-hmm. the area you're holding that in is your working memory. And so for a lot of kids, they're maybe grabbing the first three numbers and then they get distracted. We've lost it. So cognitive offloading is taking what's in your working memory and putting it down physically somewhere. So whether it's a Google doc for a kiddo who doesn't want to handwrite Let's have them type it in Google Doc. A lot of my students love a good whiteboard next to their desk. I know a lot of my adult clients, the sticky notes, but we're offloading. And so Russell Barkley, he has this famous, it's a trending on Instagram right now, but essentially he says people with ADHD should walk around with a notebook in their pocket. Have you seen that? To cognitive offload. Um, That's one of the best skills you can teach your child because, you know, there's so much shame that happens around forgetting. And we often see a lot of my clients will say, my child lies. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, that's because their working memory isn't that strong. Wouldn't you lie and say, oh, I I did that because you're just constantly in the state of, did I do it? Or I didn't even know that was a thing I had to do. Right. So by cognitive offloading, we're helping teach them the practice of, When we get new information, we write it down so that we're not putting that pressure on an area of our brain that is developing at a different pace or it's just not there yet. So let's use this tool. And a lot of kids will create very unique strategies to cognitive offload. I see a lot of kids create rhymes or they'll put it in a song. Um, But yes, cognitive offloading is is a very important skill set to reinforce that your child does it. And I will say it's really hard in the beginning to encourage them to write things down or record what their homework is and and then cross it off. But I speak 
to my students, just like I'm speaking with you, explaining that psychoeducation behind the why. And then it's more approachable. For sure. And then they can sort of adapt what works for them, like you're saying, because Mm -hmm. ADHD people tend to be really creative and innovative and think outside the box. And maybe they've got a different idea than just writing it on a notepad that would really work for them. And when we're receptive to that, Mm -hmm. it just kind of, it's easier, don't you think? It's so much better. And I will say I have a classic assignment book, but what I do is I say to my students, your autonomy and you know, your freedom in creating systems that work for you, that's our best bet for it to really work. I'm going to show you components that science-based that are supportive. And so as a parent, you could do that too. You could say one thing we know that's important is for you to start building time awareness. So however you're going to write this information down, I'd like you to have maybe a column in the table on your Google Doc or just in parentheses to say this should take 20 to 30 minutes because that's a really important skill to start building, time estimation of tasks. Um, Also, some form of a checkbox. Have you completed it? Yes or no? Or how are you going to show that? So problem solving with your kiddo and saying, hey, we've got these different pieces that are really important when we cognitive offload, but I'm curious how you want to do it. A lot of my students use all different formats. But our job as shepherds, essentially, for our kiddos is to create those consistent expectations, though, because it's hard. It's a hard behavior to practice. So, okay, they are creating the system, parents or caregivers. Our job is to reinforce it. We can validate that it's hard. I know it's frustrating to write things down and reinforce their capability, but I know you can do it. We're building that cognitive offloading skill. I would say I see much more success when the child is that thinking partner. When the child is part of the solution or the creative problem solving versus us just saying, here's something I printed off of a website, you're going to do this and you're going to do it. You know, there's no dopamine behind that. There's no interest base behind that, right? Especially also if we have a a 2E kiddo, a gifted kiddo, we've got a little bit of inflexible thinking there. So there may be a big pushback. So getting curious, having them part of the conversation, so important. Oh, it's a game changer. I I, Mm -hmm. I totally with you on that. You mentioned a bit about perfectionism and procrastination. Can you touch a bit on like, why are those two things often correlated? Yes. So I like to call this analysis paralysis Mm. with kiddos with perfectionism. So sometimes they will get an assignment that is multi-step. So I see this a lot with big essays. I see this a lot with big projects that, you know, span a couple weeks at a time. And one thing I always recommend for parents is go over the directions with the kiddos and help kind of navigate, how are we interpreting this? How many slides have to be about, you know, this country, right? Or really kind of breaking down the rubric or the deliverables so that your child isn't stuck in this kind of perfectionistic cycle of, is this exactly what they want? It's that murkiness, which leads to the spinning stage where we're just in that procrastinating. We know what has to happen. So sometimes identifying the deliverables, identifying the task is key. I would also say one phrase that I use with students is, what does done look like? And so the concept of that is, let's pull up the rubric. 
or let's look at the directions. And again, like the deliverables, what would done look like? Not something that we would submit for a Nobel prize. What does getting it completed look like? And just by doing that, sometimes they can start the task and then they hit that momentum stride and that flow stride and that wall of awful or that overwhelming mountain that they have to climb to just task initiate, they've suddenly gotten over that and then they're able to navigate the task. To start it, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, I, what I feel is sometimes when we think it has to be perfect and it's so overwhelming, it's like, well, we'll just not start it because it's too much or, you know, so the breaking it down and making it more like what is done look like it doesn't have to be as elaborate maybe as we have it in our minds breaks down that barrier, I think, around initiating the task. And I have so many adult clients who speak to this point, a lot of 2E adult clients who said a lot of my teachers didn't think that I was very smart because I wasn't getting work done in class, but I would rather not do it at all than potentially do it wrong. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oof, that is such a powerful perspective and so important also for maybe a perspective shift for a parent who's like, my child's just oof lazy or my child is so stubborn. Maybe they're really worried about what the outcome is going to look like. Maybe there's some perfectionism underneath. And I would say that more times than not, a child who's consistently procrastinating, there's either a potential learning disability like dyslexia or dysgraphia that's underlying, or there's some really intense anxiety or perfectionism. Yeah. And even rejection sensitivity, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, yes. And that that's a whole nother episode. That's right? a whole nother episode. But, <laughs> but that's a huge one. That's a huge right? piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, yeah, the rejection-sensitive dysphoria is something, if listeners are interested in that, that is just a whole other component. But essentially, I see a lot of overlap with rejection-sensitive dysphoria and ADHD. Essentially, it's that emotional regulation piece of executive function where it's this overwhelming fear of rejection or of something not being the way that it's supposed to be. What will others think? It's just a very big feeling. Um, I'd rather not do it than fail. So it's like tied to perfectionism a bit, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And so I think speaking to students about what does done look like. And I also talk about efficiency because unfortunately, if you're in like a classical school system, part of it is playing the game and kind of learning how to get through it without spending eight hours a night on homework. And I think that that's also an important skill set for work. How do we get through tasks that may feel really overwhelming or have to be perfect? And maybe how do we just get them done? Because it's better to get them done versus things pile up and then we're in a big pile of things that are overdue and need to be completed. And just adds to the anxiety too, which yep, also and the overwhelm executive mm-hmm. function skill, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell me about, I know you speak to this three-step communication that you recommend with mm-hmm. parents communicating with their ADHD kiddos. Can you tell us a bit about that? Of course. So the three-step communication method is Cindy Goldrich is an ADHD parent coach. I studied under her and she 
kind of coined this concept. Russell Barkley also talks about it. Um, and in my practice, I just shape shifted it a little bit to really apply to the need that I saw with my clientele. But essentially the first step is reflective listening. So we use this communication strategy. If you're kind of feeling a little bit of tension or struggle to motivate a kiddo, or you're noticing maybe homework needs to start or a task needs to be completed that's a little bit frustrating or maybe we have a surprise event like going to the dentist and they're they're just like I wasn't expecting that I don't want to do this so I like to tell parents that I, I recommend just using the line so you're telling me or I'm hearing you say so for example let's say it's a multi-step project so I'm hearing you say that this feels like it's gonna take forever which, side note, that's time blindness or that time awareness piece, right? You really want to play your video games right now. And this isn't due until Friday. So it doesn't feel that important. And you're simply reflective listening. No sarcasm at this time. That's really hard, but I know you can do it parents. Yeah. <laughs> and teachers can also use this. So you're reflective listening back to the child. Sometimes at this stage, they will hear their words reflected and they'll say, oh no, it's really not that bad or okay, I can just do this. But let's say that they're not there and they're like, yes, this is what's happening. You heard me correctly. Mm -hmm. The next step is validating. Oftentimes this is what is missing. Children feel like my mom or my parent isn't understanding me. They're not hearing what I'm saying. They're not understanding how hard this is or how overwhelming this is. So we're validating. So we use the phrase, I can see, I can see how this is really overwhelming. I can see how this feels like a lot. And then the third step is redirection. So if you need them to complete the task, I'd like you to open up your Google Classroom and let's take a look at the prompt, for example, something like that. Or I'd like you to show me the rubric, please. Let's take a look at that. So you're redirecting the behavior and it's very clear. It's not a negotiation. It's not a compromise. It's just a clear directive. And then there's power in the pause. So you wait for them to respond. And something that's important about this three-step communication method is it's very clear, it's very concise, and Russell Barkley always says, touch more, talk less, in mm -hmm. the sense of you want to be in the same room as your kiddo, you want to be kind of close enough to them. Again, any kiddo with sensory sensitivity, we want to be thoughtful of that, but with them present and just clear, explicit communication versus it feeling really big and heated. So that three steps of reflective listening, validating, and redirecting or giving a direction can be really supportive no matter what the situation. And I see it because you're not playing into the reactivity that we sometimes see with kiddos. You know, we know with the whole concept of co-regulation, if you're heightened, your kiddo is going to be heightened. Yeah. And we're also modeling really supportive behavior in the sense of we talk through it, we hear each other, and then we kind of come up with a plan. Yes. And, and just that validation piece is so powerful. Like the child feeling heard in their experience, seen in their experience, and that their input matters in the exchange. All of that, I think just is such a, a game changer in how we communicate with our kids in healthy, productive ways. So yes. I really, I love this. 
So we've talked so much about, we have these executive function challenges, Mm -hmm. but as we know, when we're ADHD, we also have so many amazing strengths. Like we talked about, you know, the creativity, the innovation, the outside the box thinking, Mm -hmm. the ability to zero in and hyper-focus on things we're interested in and be really productive on things that we're Mm -hmm. passionate about. So for a parent who's broaching the subject of ADHD, maybe explaining this is your neurowiring and wanting to present it in a more strength-based way, do you have mm-hmm. any tips there around how to have a conversation in that manner? Yeah, I think it's a really important conversation to have because sometimes you'll hear different clinicians say ADHD is a superpower. And what's interesting is when I have spoken openly with my students about this, a lot of them have shared, I feel invalidated, or I don't feel like someone's really understanding this can actually be really hard. And, and this can feel really overwhelming for me at times. How is someone saying it's a superpower, especially a teenager? If a parent says that sometimes you'll get a big scorpion tail back a little whip, like you don't understand, right? You're dismissing Um, my experience. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I often explain to students, especially if they're in a more traditional school environment, we know that this brain type is wildly observational, right? It's kind of this brain type that notices tiny shifts is can, like you said, can hyper-focus and the divergent thinking ability is, it's incredible. And in traditional school, there's a right or a wrong answer, Mm -hmm. or you have to do it this way. And so being able to teach kiddos, there are some areas in life, in work, in school, where the model doesn't necessarily fit your neurotype or the way your brain thrives. It doesn't really nourish that. So if the child is staying in public school or traditional school, how can we work efficiently? How can we use executive function skills and strategies and tools to kind of get through the uninspiring, not really novel part of these tasks, but then how do we tap into your incredible strengths, incredible zones of genius, and really lean into those and your passions? So I do explain to kiddos when something isn't of high interest, isn't of high novelty, isn't of high urgency. We do see executive function challenges happen when you have ADHD. So I I think it's important to, like you said, validate those lived experiences, lived struggles, feel understood, but then also remind children there are wildly incredible capacities that come out of ADHD. We see a lot of entrepreneurs with ADHD. This is divergent, quick, adaptable thinking. And so reminding children that often the divergent thinkers are the ones that make a lot of change in this world and helping them also know here every step of the way. And when we encounter a challenge, we can use strategies, we can problem solve together to get through it. We can self-advocate to get through it. Absolutely. Yes. And I feel like it's also highlighting, like you're saying, not dismissing the challenge, but also Mm -hmm. highlighting here's what you're good at. Mm -hmm. but you might be in an environment that doesn't necessarily align with the way you work best. Mm -hmm. So how are you going to self-advocate for yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. so that you can better create environments that are aligned for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think so often it's the environment that's reflecting 
the inadequacy, right? Because yes. our environments really are designed for neurotypical thinking. So mm -hmm. if you're neurodivergent, it is going to feel hard mm -hmm. <laughs> because that's not the way you naturally maybe want to do things. But that reframe doesn't mean something's wrong with you or mm -hmm. it's less than. It just means that it's different. And maybe this environment isn't a match. So we've got to have the skills to speak up, you know, and, and advocate yeah. for our needs. Yeah. And even to add on to that, I will say to a student, let's use your mind. What can we do to make this more interesting or mm. more manageable? So I have a lot of kiddos, the task of folding laundry, very low interest. Yeah. But what if we put an episode of a TV show playing in the background, as long as you're folding the laundry and putting it in the basket, we can do that. So that creative problem solving taps into those natural abilities of these kiddos. Again, they feel ownership in the problem solving process. And I think that's very powerful. It's very motivating. You're also teaching your child that so school often tells them there's one way to do this. Sometimes parents may say, this is how we're going to do it. I think it's really empowering and very supportive as a parent to say, how would you do this? Mm. I'm going to give you some, some insight onto maybe some components that are important for you to consider in your problem solving decision. But what, what do you think? And I really see a decrease in anxiety in children who are encouraged to think this way, who have parents who say, you know, your way of approaching this is valid. Let's let's give it a go. And then we reevaluate so that they don't feel like there's someone else who knows the answer and they're just kind of at the mercy of what anyone tells them to do. Absolutely. It's bringing in that creativity, autonomy, and respect. Yes. Ultimately, right? Oh, yes. All of those. Yeah. All those things that really are really good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This was so amazing talking to you, Megan. Can you share with us, how can people get in touch with you? I know you've got amazing offers that you have available to people. Let us know what's going on in your world. So thank you so much. No, this was so fun. You and I can talk for hours. About I know. I know. It's so we fascinating. Really um, so right now, the learning collective, atx.com is my website. So in terms of offerings, I have a student workbook, which encompasses more than 15 different strategies for students to learn. It's mainly geared towards school, but it's, you know, executive function, skill building strategies around time management, planning and prioritizing, task initiation, all these kind of tips and tricks that we chatted about today. Those are going to be in the student workbook. I also have a student planner. And if you know my child would not write on paper, just take a look at it and, and take a preview on my website of the components and then adapt it, right? Like we were talking about. Because and wasn't it created by ADHD kiddos? Yes. A yeah. lot of my students from last year, <laughs> yeah. they were like, I would never use this or yeah. – Mrs. Barnett, let's put this in. Um, there's also like a little area to check off a backpack clean out. That's super important. So one of the main things with ADHD is I like to do kind of preventative measures versus reacting to the big explosions that happen. So instead we're kind of being preventative versus reactionary. And then I have a seven-week parent crash course that dives into all things ADHD and all things executive function, very, very similar to a lot of the topics that we covered today. There's a self-paced version, or you can do the meeting with me and I can go through the neuropsychological evaluation if you, if you have one for your child um, to come up with some strength-based, like we were talking about strategies that are very individualized. So 
lots of different options. Um, I also offer virtual coaching for parents and kiddos. So if you're out there and you need just two low cost tips, I would say, get yourself a visual countdown timer from Amazon so that you can help. Yep. We love that. You told me to get one and I love it. So that we can start working on that time blindness, setting some just time awareness and then a whiteboard and just start cognitive offloading and maybe use the three-step communication method. That's like under $15 maybe. And there is so much support, so many answers out there. And I just hope that parents feel inspired and hopeful versus discouraged or overwhelmed because there's a lot of really incredible practices that can support your child and a lot of great resources. And I think, you know, I was so honored to go on your podcast because I'm just so thrilled that you're offering these supports because parents need to learn all these different things. It's an honor to have you on here. And I just love sharing with listeners, other neurodiversity affirming professionals who really Mm -hmm get the complexity of what it means to be neurodivergent and understand how to support families through a strength-based lens. So thank you for all that you do, Megan, and for being here today. And I know we'll talk again soon. I have no doubt. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. Remember to subscribe and review so you don't miss a thing. Is your child struggling to thrive in their current classroom setting? Then you need to head to the show notes to snag my free shareable pamphlet for your child's teacher. It breaks down how to create equitable learning environments for all students based on the leading research in the field of neurodiversity. Because what benefits neurodivergent students benefits all kids.